Hebrews chapter 10. There is a book called Outliers that a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell wrote. And what he did is he kind of tried to track this very strange story of a man by the name of Christopher Langan. Now, some of you may have heard of him. Uh, this man, Christopher Langan, has a staggering IQ of 195. Okay. Now, if you're going, well, what does that mean? Help me with a little perspective. Uh, generally, uh, most people, they're, they're kind of in the 90 to 109 range. Okay. Uh, if you are a part of the Mensa group, which I know that almost everybody in our church is, uh, that's the, the club for geniuses, okay, you are at 132 or above. Einstein, his IQ was measured to be about 150. This guy, Christopher Langan, however, had an IQ measured at 195. Now, I mean, he grew up most of his childhood in Montana. School was a complete bore for him. He could open up any textbook, like if he's taking a foreign language exam, in two to three minutes, scan whatever material needed to be known, and could ace any test. When he took the SAT, he got a perfect score, even though he fell asleep in the middle of it. Okay? Uh, he he uh, just, I mean, just a staggering IQ. He was featured in 2020, and they had a guy by the name of Dr. Bob Novelli, who runs these tests and evaluates the IQs of individuals. He's been doing this for over 25 years, so he put him through a battery of exams for over two hours of just incredibly difficult uh, puzzles and problems. And when he finished these two, uh, in these two hours, Dr. Bob Novelli said, I have never encountered a higher score. This man is just absolutely brilliant. And yet, you would think that with such genius, I mean, he'd be completely unstoppable. I mean, whatever he'd want to do, he could just set his mind to do it and do it, right? Well, in actuality, uh, he tried college twice. Never made it through. And so what you might be surprised is that he took a string of labor-intensive jobs. And through his mid-40s, uh, by that time he had been a construction laborer, a cowboy. He had fought some forest fires with the Forest Service. Uh, he had been a farmhand. And his longest stint, for 20 years, he was a bouncer at a bar in Long Island, New York, and living off of $6,000 a year. And you're like, whoa, what, what happened? How could that possibly be? And that is what's so fascinating about the book that Gladwell writes, is he traces this man and his development. And he had a terrible home life. I mean, the things that his, his stepdad did to him were horrific and terrible. By the age of 14, uh, Christopher Langan actually... Has to, he actually physically assaults his dad, beats him up, and throws him out of the house and tells him never to come back because if he does, he'll finish the job. His life was a disaster. He had no one that actually believed in him or cared for him. School was a disaster. He was always being picked on. And Gladwell summarizes in one sentence the tragedy of, of Langan. He says, Langan had to make his way alone. And no one, listen to this, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, and not even geniuses ever makes it alone. Now, this is so important for us because, you know what? As Christians, somewhere we got the idea that we can go it alone. We really don't need anybody else. My faith is personal and private, and I can live individualistically. And so we pursue our Christian life 
primarily as seeking as just me and God. And we don't oftentimes think of how how interrelated we are and how much we need each other. When the Bible talks about one another's and about us being together and encouraging one another and being there for one another, he's not saying that this would be nice. This is a nice ideal. God says this is absolutely necessary. If you are a believer in Christ and you want to grow to the fullness of maturity, it will never happen apart from the context of community. If you are going it alone, you are going to try the Lone Ranger route, you are set up for failure. Yes, Christ is the one who gives salvation. He gives eternal life. But God, who has given us spiritual life in his son, he intends to bring us to maturity, and he always does that within the context of relationships. And if you really want life, you've got to connect with one another. And that is what is driven home when you come to Hebrews chapter 10. When you pick it up in verse 19, he's going to give a summary of all that he wrote before. And the book of Hebrews summarizes how we know that Jesus Christ is superior to all things. Superior to angels, superior to all man, superior. He's the superior priesthood. He is the one and only. In verses 19 through 21, he actually gives us a summary of the gospel. He says, in light of... Of what I've just told you, look at verse 19, chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's going to tell us this is how you live in light of a relationship with Christ. Now, let me just just kind of talk here, talk through this just briefly here as we picked it up in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What is he talking about here? Well, to the Jewish mind, uh, they would know exactly what they're talking about. When he talked about the holy place in the tabernacle and later the temples that were built in Jerusalem, there was a holy place. Okay, and the priests would go in there and they would offer and render service unto God. But then within the holy place, there was a place called the Holy of Holies or he's referred to here as the holy place. At this place, the high priest entered once a year. That was it. And they believed that right there at the, at the Ark of the Covenant, that is where you actually met God. His presence was being manifest in a very unique way. And so he would, this high priest, once a year, would go behind this veil and he would offer a sacrifice for his sins and then also for the sins of all of his people. And it happened once a year. Well, picking up on that, Jesus is the one who allows us to enter into this holy place. You and I have access to God Almighty at all times because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the sacrifice and he sacrifices himself so that you and I are cleansed from our sin and we are covered by his presence and we are united with Christ, we can actually enter in and talk with God at any time. Now, we've prayed several times this morning. I would imagine you did even before you came to church. But think of it. The next time you pray, you are entering into the holiness of God. And the only way that you can do it is through the merits of Christ, what Christ has done on our behalf. And we have confidence. Do you see that in verse 19? Now, like... For instance, like a king, 
you could never just approach a king and a woman like, yeah, I'm go check out how this monarch is doing. I think I'll step in. No, you could never do that. You, you had to have access. You had a means, had a means of getting in there. Well, that is true with God. You can't come on your own. You and I, we are wretchedly sinful. And to think that we're going to come into the presence of a holy God is unthinkable apart from the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And we don't come on just on the merits of his, of his righteous life. Christ had to die. Do you see that? Verse 20, we have a new and a living way by which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And what happened is Jesus' body, when he was on the cross, he was pierced through for our transgressions. His body was torn. He was sacrificed on our behalf, and he rose again to offer that anyone who will believe in him can enter into the presence of God, not based on your own merit, but on the merit of Christ himself who died for us, and he rose again. He offers and authenticates spiritual life to any who will believe in him. If you will simply trust in Christ, you can enter into the holiness of God. It is a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. Remember, remember there was this large curtain that went before the, between the holy place and the holy of holies. Mark 15 records that when Christ died and he uttered, it is finished. Mark 15, verse 38, that big uh, that curtain was rent. It was split in two from the top to the bottom. God symbolized as he tore it open. Access to me is now available through Christ for all time. You don't have to be a high priest. You can't come just once a year. You can come at all times because of what I have done in my son. And he is, verse 21, the great priest over the house of God. We have one who knows us well. Think of it. Jesus has existed. Jesus Christ has existed from all eternity. The son of God, God, the son has existed from all eternity. Two thousand years ago, he enters into humanity. He actually becomes a baby. He lives among us. He lives a perfect life and he can relate to all the problems that you and I have because he also is a man. He is fully man and fully God. We have a priest who cares for us, shepherds us, covers us, dies for us, and he rose again so that we may always live with him and for him. We have a great high priest and a great priest over the house of God. This, in essence, friends, is the gospel. This is the great news that God wants every person to understand. Though we are sinful We can enter into vital, authentic, genuine relationship with God by believing in Christ because his blood was sacrificed on our behalf. Christ took God's divine wrath and he paid for it in himself. How in the world do we live in light of that reality? That is what a Christian is, by the way. A Christian is one who is believing completely and only in Jesus Christ for his salvation. You're not trusting your good works, your good track record, how many times you showed up at church, how many Bibles you got in your house. A Christian is one who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the Savior of his sin and the Lord of his life. How do we live, we who know Christ? Well, he tells us. There are, there are three charges he gives us. In response to the book Gospel of Christ, 
we are, first of all, verse 22, we are to draw near with faith. Now, the verse that I'm about to read you, this may be one of the most freeing verses in the New Testament for you. This may be the hidden gem. This may very well be the reason why you're here this morning. Look what he says in verse 22. We draw near by faith. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, as a result of us being united with Christ, we can draw near with faith. Draw near with a sincere heart. We genuinely, honorably, we can actually go before God in full assurance of faith, knowing this. I don't know if you saw this, but look what he talks about hearts and bodies. He's using the language of sacrifice, having hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What they would do is they'd actually take the blood and they would actually sprinkle it on that, that tabernacle. They would sprinkle it as a sign of cleansing and covering. You and I, we have been cleansed and we are covered by Christ. Look what he says. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our conscience once was twisted and traumatized by evil and guilt. And God has made a way for us where we no longer have to live under condemnation We are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you trust Christ, you are cleansed from an evil conscience. And notice what else he says. And our bodies are washed with pure water. To me, this is staggering and staggering and fascinating. When I've shared this with different individuals, I have seen just how completely freeing it is to know that both heart, mind, soul, and body, you are cleansed by Christ. You know, he never sees you in your sin. He always sees you in his son. You are united with Christ. In fact, you could just jump up 1017. Look what God says in the new covenant and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God sees you as perfectly whole Clean, clean conscience, pure bodies, because you're united with Christ. You are new, you are forgiven, because you're transformed by the presence of Christ himself. Now, we, we look at that verse, and we're like, well, yeah, but uh, I, I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know things that I should have done that I didn't do. And to think that I am completely clean and even my body, things that you've done with your body that you would want no one else to know about. Do you know that you are cleansed? Your body has been washed with pure water. Those priests were always washing their hands all the time. God wants you to know that even your bodies have been washed by the blood of Christ. You are absolutely pure and clean. I was reading of a Baylor College student by the name of Roger Barrier and Typical freshman, uh, you know, he was onto a lot of firsts in his life. And one of those firsts is he'd have to learn how to wash his own clothes, okay, because mama wasn't going to be there. And so 
Mom knew that this was going to be hard, and so she's like, ah, all right, Roger. So she sewed on this duffel bag, and she said, all right, listen, Roger, every day when you get done, you take all your dirty clothes and put them in this bag, okay? And at the end of the week, you take your bag of dirty laundry, and you go to the laundromat, and you wash your clothes. Okay, got it? Yes, Mama. All right, and so he gets to school, and he goes through his first week. He's, he's followed everything just like he was told. He's a good Baylor student. He put all his dirty clothes in his duffel bag that his mama sewed him. He shows up there at the laundromat. Figure out how many quarters are needed there. And he, he took the bag and he just put it right there in, into the washing machine right there and put all the soap that he was supposed to, or at least he thought, you know, and put those, shoved those quarters in there and shut it down there. And not bad, you know. Kind of sat down. Well, you know what starts happening. All of a sudden, thump, thump, thump. And he makes that just rattling sound there. Everybody in the laundromat's looking there. Roger's like, what's going on here? You know, this never happened at home. And one of these Baylor co-eds, this nice little gal there, she's been watching this whole scene there. I'm sure he's taking it all in. And, uh, like, I will definitely not marry this guy. And uh, and she she walks up to him and says, like, I, I noticed that how you put your clothes in the, in the washing machine. And she said this, you know, I think your clothes would be a lot cleaner if you took them out of the bag. Now, I tell you this, because when we think about the cleansing that Christ offers us, somehow we relegate it. It's, it's just general. I've been a sinner. Christ cleansed me from all my sins. But God wants you to know that it's specific. The vilest things you've done, the heinous things that you've said, the wicked things that you've fought, he wants you to know that piece by piece, each one of those, he has cleansed you of. And he wants you to live in light of the reality that you are forgiven and that you're new. And so you see what we do is we draw near with faith. Let me tell you what else we do. Verse 23, we hold fast our hope. Look at verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do you know how we should live in light of the fact that we're united with Christ? We live holding fast the confession of our faith. We don't forsake it. We don't walk away from Christ. We don't water it down because it'll make it more palatable for the culture. I mean, the last thing that the world needs, right, is some fanatical people about Jesus, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to temper it all down. And we'll, 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 we'll use our Christianity like a card when it's acceptable. And for the most part, we're going to keep it in our pocket. He says, no, you hold fast your confession. You don't water it down. You don't forsake it. You don't make it match the culture. You live unashamed about your relationship with Christ. And you hold fast. And these words that were written, the original recipients, their great fear is they were going to be persecuted unto death. And the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake your hope. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Let me give you just the third way we live in response to the glorious gospel of Christ. This is the one I I don't want you to miss. This is the big focus of this particular Sunday. And that is we are to grow together in love. Let me put it in just a real simple term, a sentence for you. The reality of the gospel is to be seen in our relationships with each other. Look what he says in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, you want to live in light of the gospel of Christ? You do so in the context of community. We need to grow together. And notice what he says. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. They don't happen naturally. They happen supernaturally. And God uses each of us in our, in our lives to spur us on to love and good deeds. Now, don't get at the idea that love is just some sort of emotion. And we work with some sort of emotion like, well, okay, I think I will start loving the people in my church or my spouse or my family. Love is a decision of the will. It's a conscious decision, and oftentimes, oftentimes your emotions will follow. But he says we're to encourage one another to love each other, to love one another. That means that you actually have to know someone well enough and have a little bit of rapport of a relationship where you can actually have that kind of encouragement to love and good deeds, good deeds that do good things in people's lives because of your relationship with Christ. And by the way, The unbelieving world is looking to see, will you love them when they are unlovable? And will you do good to them and for them because of your relationship with Christ? If you run around and despise non-believers like, oh, they're not as smart as I am or they don't got to figure it out and they're making my life miserable. And and you despise them. They pick that up. They read that signal really loud and clear. On the other hand, when we love them and when we'll do good to them, they see the reality of our relationship with Christ. But it's not just the outside world, friends. It is the church. The church isn't a building. The church is a body of believers. And we are to love one another and to stir up this kind of love in each other's hearts. That means you've got to be connected with others. If you're not connected, you will never do what the Scripture commanded, and you will be in a perpetual state of immaturity. If you've been a Christian for like 20, 30 years, you're like, I, I still seem like a spiritual infant. Let me ask you, are you genuinely connected with other believers, or have you kept putting up the wall? Have you gotten real good at the stiff arm? Anybody try to get close to you? You got them on the ground. And you know exactly how to keep a distance between you and other believers. Friends, you're doing that to the detriment of your own development. We have a propensity to pull away. That's why God says, I want you to stir one another up. You be connected to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Think of it. You know, when we, uh, when we get to the presence of the Lord, when we're in heaven, we're not going to be able to say, God, I, I didn't understand that we were in this together. I didn't know that we were supposed to work with one another and care for one another and pull for one another and pray for one another. I, I kind of thought it was just me and you. When he has made it absolutely clear, we're in this together. You know, to withdraw from corporate fellowship, whether it be part of a fellowship like being involved in a church service on a Sunday morning or a fellowship family or small group, that is to invite disaster into your life. It's kind of like a soldier who's in battle, and he decides, you know, I don't really like the guys in my platoon. They smell bad. They don't understand me and my feelings. You know what? I think I'm going to pull away. That will make everything better. The soldier who does that gets picked off. It's always how it works. 
because you've chosen to stray, because you're saying, well, my emotions aren't in it. I don't feel like I want to connect with others. It's not, your faith is not based on your feelings. It's based, based on the facts of the reality of the gospel and what he's revealed in his word. You see, we're kind of like arrows. You know, if you take a single arrow, you can snap that baby just, just like that. But if you take a whole quiver full of arrows and you take all of those arrows, friends, I don't care how strong you are, you can't snap them because there is a strength that comes from being together. When you are united, you're not going to be easily broken. Friends, that's why God has called us into his body. We are united and we need each other. We need to know each other's names, and we need to have at least a few people that we can go deep with. Otherwise, we're just an accident waiting to happen. You know, when, the, when there were the uh, slave revolts in the Roman Empire in the first century B.C., when they slaves would, would try to gather together, the Romans did everything they could, the soldiers did everything they could to separate slaves to keep them from uniting because they knew if the slaves could unite, they could overwhelm the Roman army and they would take over. Well, do you know what? Satan knows that. The enemy of our souls always wants to keep us divided, isolated, and kept from each other. Friends, the clear calling of the text is you who know Christ, the one who's entered into the veil, who makes access with God possible, who has cleansed us from all of our sin, both your conscience and your body. That, is anybody rejoicing over that reality? Absolutely. But how then shall we live? We grow together in love. It is the only way. It is God's way. You know, this attitude of just growing together and living together, that was just beautifully manifested July 24, 2002. There were 18 coal miners in what has now been called the miracle at Kew Creek when this mine collapsed. Now, nine of those guys got out, but nine of them didn't. And they were, they were 240 feet below the, the top, the surface of the earth. And the particular mine they were in started filling up with water that was at 55 degrees. And they were getting ready for a slow death by hypothermia. And these eight miners that are in there together, and it's all dark, and the world's closed off, they made this decision. We're either going to live together or die together, but we're going to go through this together. And so what they did is, as the water rose up and they started, you know, getting very cold, they'd huddled together in masses. And they, and they were eventually rescued three days later. But what they told about is this, these experiences that as soon as one of them got cold, they'd slip him into the middle and they'd just keep hovering around and they'd just keep holding on each other. And they said at different times, all of us started to falter started having these breakdowns. And as soon as someone started having a breakdown, all the others would try to encourage them. And they were in this together. Friends, that is how the church is to be. We're in a cold place. There's a reason why our faith isn't looked upon in favor, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. We are in this together. We got to learn how to huddle up and to be close to one another. We've got to learn how to talk and communicate at a heart level where you can actually encourage one another to love and good deeds. It's more than being nice and civil with each other. We're called to love one another. And connecting for life, friends, it's not just nice. It's necessary. Let me just tell you just the vision of fellowship. We are like an orchard. 
And each of us is a tree that God has planted. He had planted the seed, the gospel, and he had allowed it to take root. And it's starting to flourish, and we're sinking roots, and we're starting to grow up, and we're starting to bear fruit. But we are an orchard, and we are going to bear fruit. And the way that we do that is that we stay focused on Christ and the reality of the gospel, and we grow together in love. For see, the reality of the gospel is to be seen by our relationships with one another. How then will we live here at Fellowship Bible Church? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just the amazing power of your word. You speak so clearly to the issues. You tell us of the great and glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell us how to live in light of the reality that we know him and we are part of your household. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a heart that truly would Grow together in love. I pray that you would do a unique work in our lives and in our church. That it would be a testimony to this community, perhaps even to the world. Oh, how these Christians, they love one another. And so we ask, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.